Republicans to wake up. Is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to a fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. And as our pronouncer told you, this program is supported by listeners. My thanks to Raymond Welch of California, Russ Archibald of Hawaii, and Rick and Catherine Art of Boise, Idaho, all monthly contributors to the Peter B. Collins Show. If you'd like to help, just go to PeterBCollins.com and click on the tab that says You Can Help. In the second portion of this podcast, we'll talk for the second time with journalist Hank Alberelli. He's published a fascinating book that reveals the dirty deeds of the CIA going back to the 1950s and the troubling death of Frank Olson, who was one of the people who was dosed with LSD by the CIA. But first, a judge in San Francisco has upheld what I think are my Fourth Amendment rights. In a lawsuit against the National Security Administration's wiretapping program. Hello. NSA. I just called you to say I love you. I love you because you because you really listen. Now, for several years, we have been talking with John Eisenberg, the Bay Area attorney who has has been representing plaintiffs in a case against the NSA regarding the illegal, it's not just warrantless, the illegal wiretapping of Americans in the United States. John Eisenberg, welcome back to our program. Thanks. I'm happy to be back on the show. And in fact, I'm just happy, period, right now. I'll bet you are. So Judge Vaughn Walker, I think, issued a courageous ruling uh, regarding the wiretapping of your clients, uh, two attorneys and members of an Islamic charity based in Oregon called Al-Haramain. And this appears to be a very important ruling, John, that has uh, essentially told us that the government broke the law when it imposed this wiretapping without properly getting a warrant from the Foreign Intelligence uh, Surveillance Court, the FISA Court. Tell me the, uh, your thoughts about the impact of this ruling. Well, it's the first decision by a federal judge that specific wiretapping of specific individuals was unlawful. Certainly, up until now, we've known that the Bush administration was doing it. They admitted it. They just didn't say who they were doing it to. And in order to file a lawsuit, getting a judicial determination 
with regard to the legality of the program, you need a client. And it just so happens we had a client. We have people who actually were wiretapped. Mm-hmm. And this court, Judge Walker, determined that they were wiretapped. They did have standing. They have standing to sue. And that was the big obstacle in the case. Once you get a finding of standing, it's easy. And it was easy for Judge Walker to say, they were wiretapped. That's unlawful. Why is a violation? Government is liable. End of story. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for a, a few minor details like uh, assessment of damages and possible appeal by the government. Right. Now, uh, on the Keith Olbermann program, uh, the night of the ruling, which was uh, the last day of March, uh, James Risen, the New York Times reporter who first exposed uh, this wiretapping program, and to be fair, he did so a year after they actually discovered it. Uh, It was in December of 2005 uh, that this was revealed by the Times in advance of the publication of a book by Risen. Yes, uh, Risen as well as Eric Lischblau. That's right. Now, one of the points that Risen made was that his sources tell him that the Obama Justice Department may not appeal this case, uh, this ruling by Judge Walker. Uh, Do you have any sense of that? No, not personally. I have heard others speculate uh, to the same effect. Uh, I haven't gotten a call from the Justice Department yet in any way, so mm-hmm. I don't know what they are going to do. I I hope they do not appeal. I think they have plenty of good reason not to appeal, and I imagine they're considering very seriously what their next move should be. But uh, right now, uh, it's all speculation. Okay. The only people who know are, are, are sitting in offices in Washington, D.C. right now. Now, you specialize in appeals, so maybe you can educate us a little bit here, John. Uh, what is the precedential value of a district court ruling like this? If it is not appealed and it stands, uh, would it then uh, be a precedent that other cases could cite uh, in trying to establish a wrongful uh, eavesdropping or interception of communications? Well, uh, it, it, the short answer is it is persuasive. It is not precedential. Now, let me give you a little more explanation. Now I get to be a real appellate lawyer. Please. <laughs> Which I haven't done much in this case. Decisions have precedential value only if they are issued by appellate courts. Mm-hmm. which in the federal system would be the U.S. Supreme Court or one of the many uh, circuit courts of appeals. Decisions by federal district judges, which is the first level of judicial review in the federal system, decisions by federal district judges do not have precedential value, meaning that they are not binding on people and institutions and entities that aren't actually parties to the case. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they can't be cited. They can be cited as persuasive authority, and we appellate lawyers often do that. I can write a brief. I can cite Judge Walker's decision in this case, but it's not binding on anybody. And it's only as persuasive as the judge I'm citing it to cares to treat it. So uh, if there's no appeal in this case, what it means is that what's left on the books is a decision that has no precedential value whatsoever, but could be taken as persuasive in subsequent cases where somebody else files a lawsuit for unlawful surveillance uh, in violation of FISA, which I don't think is going to happen again. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and one of the problems I have is that uh, I am disappointed in the way the Obama uh, administration and the Holder Justice Department have tried to extend some of the bad precedents set under Bush related to uh, national security and, in particular, the use of this murky state secret privilege, which uh, Judge Walker waved off uh, in this case, and I I really appreciate uh, that he did so. Uh, But my concern is that they might not appeal your case so as not to establish a precedent and to basically compartmentalize this ruling uh, and limit it to these specifics. Well, that would be one thing they would consider in deciding whether to appeal. The state secrets privilege issue in this and other cases under the Obama administration is complex. Remember, they inherited my case from Bush. Mm -hmm. In October of 2009, last year, Attorney General Holder issued a, a new written policy on the state secrets privilege in which he said, henceforth, in cases arising after the state, I'm going to do things differently than President Bush and uh, his attorneys general. I will only assert the state secrets privilege under the following conditions, subject to special review from within my department, et cetera, et cetera. So in October of 2009, they said, we're going a different way. They repudiated the way Bush handled the state secrets privilege. But they also said, this isn't going to apply to cases before 2009. So that's all very well and good, but there's still one left over that's still going on, and that's all Haramain. And although it started in 2006, to the extent that the Obama administration has continued to litigate it up to this day, they've effectively continued to assert the state secrets privilege in violation of their own new policy. So what do they do now? Now that they've lost before Walker, if they appeal, it'll be sort of like the war in Afghanistan. You know how it's said that Obama has embraced that war and made it his own? Mm -hmm. In my view, if the Obama administration appeals Judge Walker's decision, they will have embraced the Bush administration's assertion of the state secrets privilege in the Al-Haramain case and cases like it and made it their own. This will not no longer be a case they inherited, and an assertion they inherited from President Bush. They will make it their own, and that's going to be quite inconsistent with their own new policy. Yeah, I don't know how they get around that. I don't know how they explain that. Uh, we'll see. Well, and this is not your case, and if you want to pass on commenting, I, I won't press you. But the other significant case coming out of San Francisco before the Ninth Circuit uh, involved uh, detainee Binyam Muhammad and others similarly situated who were suing the Boeing division Jeppesen Aviation uh, for their participation in a kidnapping called Rendition. Yes. And in that case, uh, the this, this again was before Holder's new policy was enunciated. It was early last year. Uh, but the court itself seemed stunned that the uh, new administration was uh, offering the same, if not... Uh, uh, raising the stakes on the arguments of state secrets as a reason uh, to deny uh, the right of a plaintiff to sue. Yes. Uh, comment on it. Uh, you know, we're waiting for a decision in that case. Uh, the uh, a three-judge panel ruled against the government. Uh, a eleven-judge judge panel called an en banc panel mm-hmm. uh, heard oral arguments.
argument, I believe, about two or three months ago now uh, on the same issue, and we're awaiting a decision. That case is sort of similar in that, you know, I think the more time goes by, the more that the Obama people continue to assert the state's secrets privilege in that case, the more they make it their own. I don't know, perhaps after the ruling in that case, whatever it might be, the Obama folks may decide it's time to take another look at what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but you're right. That's not my case. I know a lot about my own case and not a whole lot about a whole lot of other stuff. All right. Let me ask you a couple of nuts and bolts questions about the process here, because the last time we spoke, uh, Judge Walker had ordered that you be granted a security clearance so that you would be able to read the government's briefs and other evidence submitted in secret in this case. Uh, was that clearance ever granted? I, uh, uh, one of my colleagues, Stephen Goldberg, uh, and myself were granted top-secret security clearance by the FBI, which means the FBI determined that we were eligible to review uh, top-secret documents in the case. However, the Justice, excuse me, the Justice Department determined that although we were eligible for security clearance, we did not have a need to know what was in any of those documents. Judge Walker said, well, I think they have a need to know as a matter of due process. And the DOJ, the Department of Justice, and now this is the Obama Department of Justice, middle of last year, came back and said, you don't have the power to determine that. Only we do. And we say they don't have a need to know, and we're not going to let them see the documents. And we are forbidding you, Judge Walker, from showing them the documents, the classified documents you have in your own files. And it got very dicey. What we had was a brewing confrontation, a a separation of powers confrontation between the judge and the Department of Justice. Judge Walker finessed it in a very interesting way. you know, if I had been a judge, I might have. <laughs> I might not. I might not have shown such finesse. Uh, but what he did was he said, "Tell you what." I mean, this was how the ruling read, but this is putting it in the, the vernacular. Yeah. He said, "Tell you what, guys. Forget the document. I'm putting it on the shelf. I am going to allow the Al Haramain folks to proceed to try to show standing to show that they were surveilled." using only publicly available evidence. And if they can do that, forget the document. We won't worry about the document. We won't worry about security clearances, battles over need to know, whatever. When Walker ruled, and and we proceeded to do that, we made our case for standing based solely on unclassified evidence that Mm -hmm. we've uh, been collecting over the four years of the litigation. And what Judge Walker said yesterday is they've made their case. They have made their case with the unclassified evidence he didn't say a word about the document. Mm-hmm. We didn't need it. Mm-hmm. All right? And he said, now, them having made their case, it's up to you, the government, to show that there was a warrant for the surveillance. The government didn't do it. And the reason why they didn't do it is pretty obvious. <laughs> yes. They didn't have a warrant. Right. I, I told the lead government attorney in this case more than three years ago, I looked him in the eye and I said, just show me a FISA warrant and I'll be gone. I'll be gone. I mean, just, just, just let's just get it over with right now. Mm-hmm. Just show me how to warrant. You, let's go. That's what I said. Let's go into chambers. We'll do it in secret. Nobody ever has to know. You show me the warrant, I walk out of here, you never see me again. It didn't happen. Why? They didn't have a FISA warrant. Mm-hmm. That's why. Yeah. 
Uh, any other Kafka-esque uh, uh, maneuvers in this case? Because uh, you have told us the story before uh, about in the uh, prior proceedings where you had to uh, take shots in the dark and guess that if the government made argument A, that your response was argument B. Uh, was there any kind of this uh, double-blind BS uh, involved in the recent proceedings? Well, I think the most recent uh, bizarreness, if there is such a word, happened in the end of February last year. Oh, my goodness, almost a year, about a year ago now, where when the Obama folks took over, about three or four weeks into the new Obama administration, the DOJ filed a top-secret document with Judge Walker that we were not allowed to see, in which they said, well, they, they, whenever you file a top-secret document, you have to file a public document explaining what the top-secret document is mm-hmm. without divulging its content. Yeah. And in the public document, they filed explaining that they were filing a secret document. They said the secret document corrects an inaccuracy in our prior secret filings. And I thought, we all thought, an inaccuracy, huh? <laughs> What's that? And we have been amongst ourselves speculating for a year over what the inaccuracy was. Was there a lie in one of the previous secret filings? Was it just some simple little mistake? Uh, did the Obama folks come in and take a look at the record and say, oh, my goodness, we better correct this or we're in big trouble? I don't know. I still don't know. And you know what? I probably never will know. Yeah. Maybe if I live long enough. You know that 50-year thing after 50 years they, they declassify stuff? Maybe if I live another 50 years, that mystery will be solved. Well, that's uh, the subject of our next segment, John, which is uh, revelations about the CIA's MK Ultra program, uh, which was uh, occurring in the early 1950s. That's how long it takes uh, to get full disclosure. Um, so finally, what are the next steps here, and uh, when will the damages be assessed? Okay, the next steps are Judge Walker has asked us to advise him whether we want to go forward on some of our other legal theories for recovery. We need to discuss that amongst ourselves, the the seven attorneys in the case, figure out what to do about that. Then Judge Walker has said, if you don't want to go forward on that stuff, just tell me uh, what your damages calculations are, which is a fairly simple matter because the statute calls for $100 per day. And it's just going to be a matter of multiplying the days of surveillance by the number of uh, of plaintiffs, which is three, mm-hmm. and then uh, considering the mat- matter of punitive damages, which would be up to Judge Walker. And uh, and then the, then the government, after that's all done, and the judge issues a ruling, which might be a few weeks or a few months from now, hard to say, the judge issues his final judgment, then the government decides. Then they have to decide whether to appeal. Although I suppose it's possible they could announce as early as tomorrow what they plan to do about this case. Mm -hmm. We'll see. As with everything uh, (laughs) in this case, there's no simple answer. Okay, finally, John, uh, is this an important first step in recovering my full Fourth Amendment rights? I don't mean to be too personal, but I do feel aggrieved uh, that uh, Congress and uh, our current president uh, colluded in the FISA reforms of 2008 uh, to essentially uh, remove the uh, uh, need for a warrant and the presumption, uh, or, or the probable cause, I'm sorry, the probable cause element of the Fourth Amendment. And I feel that we've lost uh, significant ground in our constitutional rights. Can we get them back through your legal process? 
Well, I think this is an important step by one judge in this case. How effective it is toward turning the Obama folks around on these issues and giving us some confidence that they're back on the right track depends on how they choose to deal with this decision. And we'll know about that soon. If they accept it, I think I will have regained a lot of the faith that I've lost over the past year in this president. Mm -hmm. If they continue to fight, I'll continue to see him morphing into George Bush. John Eisenberg, uh, congratulations. Uh, You've won an important victory, not just for your clients and yourself, but I think for all Americans, and I hope we can build on that. Thank you very much. Good to talk with you again, John. Likewise. The Peter B. Collins Show is regularly monitored by the National Security Agency. And we are sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Click on the link on our homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer. And I recommend these wines from the Organic Wine Company. I drink them myself. It's time now for the second installment of our interview with journalist H.P. Alberelli Jr. His powerful and comprehensive book is called A Terrible Mistake, The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments. And our music of the moment here is the song the Beatles said was not about LSD. And just a quick note, I went to iTunes to summon up the Beatles version of this song. There are 148 different versions of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. That was the born-again Beatles, as they're called. Uh, there are karaoke versions. William Shatner has a version. Uh, there's even one in Gregorian chant. But I couldn't find the original um, Lucy in the Sky. I think it's from Magical Mystery Tour was the name of the album. And uh, the reason for the music is that uh, this book by Hank Alberelli exposes the experiments that our CIA and the Army's uh, division that was involved in chemical and biological warfare development, uh, those experiments that were conducted in the 1950s and uh, into the 1960s on people who often did not know that they were being dosed with uh, LSD. Hank Alberelli, welcome back to the Peter B. Collins Show. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. I'm, I'm really pleased to be back. Well, I, I'm glad to talk with you again because uh, let me just confess that I read a lot of books for interviews. I often skim them or speed read them. I do the interview, and I never look at the book again. And yours uh, defied me on two fronts. One was I couldn't speed read it because of the density of the information that you presented, And uh, secondly, I was fascinated by it. And so it's rare that I call an author back for a second interview. And it's because uh, I felt in our first interview you were extremely articulate in describing these events, uh, many of which occurred as long as 50 years ago, and that uh, you are exposing an important era in American history. This was the Cold War, and a lot of things were rationalized Um, as uh, needed, as necessary to defend our country. And we saw an ebbing of that uh, extremism in the, or at least we thought we did, 
uh, following the investigations of the 1970s. And through the 80s and 90s, we were uh, pretty well complacent that our government doesn't torture, our government wouldn't use chemical weapons, wouldn't use uh, biological agents or uh, drugs on individuals, uh, even in a warfare setting. And many of uh, those sensibilities have been disrupted by the revelations uh, that we've heard, including in our first segment today about the illegal wiretapping of uh, Americans in the United States. And so I think your book is extremely important. And it's a long book. It took me a while to finish the, uh, the five books that it's uh, sub books that it's divided into. But I found it very rewarding. And you filled in many of the blanks. These are stories and issues that I have followed for a long time as a radio talk show host and an interested American. And I just commend you on the job you did. In the epilogue of the book, you acknowledge that you got involved more than you expected as a detached journalist, and that in some ways you became an advocate for the survivors of Frank Olson, whose death you chronicle in this book and explore in in great detail. Talk a little bit about how that felt, how it feels now. Did you feel you kind of crossed a line uh, into becoming an advocate? And did you feel that it it compromised or complicated your journalism? Sure. That's that's a tough question. Well, first, I'm really humbled by your remarks and really appreciate them. Uh, It's it's really rewarding to to hear comments like that. Uh, To answer your question... Early on, when I was writing the book, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Alan Block, who who teaches at uh, Penn State, uh, warned me when when I told him what I was writing about. He said, "Just be careful; you don't become part of the story." And if any district attorney ever contacts you, don't cooperate with them because. <laughs> Because they won't treat you well, and uh, and you'll regret any cooperation. Uh, because all they want is what you have, and they're willing to go to any lengths to get it, including trampling, trampling you and your family and anybody else that gets in the way. And I and I took that I took that advice to heart, and I didn't think I was ever going to need it. But uh, about. Five years into into my writing the Olson book, I was contacted by the by Robert Morgenthau's office uh, out of New York City, which had reopened an investigation in the early '90s into Frank Olson's death. Uh, and immediately, I thought of Dr. Block's advice to me, but at the same time, Eric Olson was practically begging me to cooperate with Morgenthau's office uh, in the way of the information I had and, and to try to help them. And so out of respect for Eric, I agreed to to talk to them a few times on the phone, but as Block had warned, uh, several calls stretched into too many calls to even recall now. And then eventually I was flown up to New York for a few days to to talk to the DA's office and and in those discussions, I basically shared everything with them. And to make a long story short, became convinced of the fact that their investigation really wasn't all that sincere to begin with. Uh, so, so I did. I became part of I became part of the story very unwillingly, but but sort of innocently. Uh, in terms of the victims themselves, 
Initially, I didn't have much contact with victims. Uh, I didn't have really any contact at all for maybe the first four or five years. And then maybe the sixth or seventh year into it, I did have a, uh, some contacts with Army, f- former service people who had been uh, used as guinea pigs at Edgewood Arsenal. And a number, a number of my conversations and interviews with those people really, really moved me. There, there were a couple guys where I just, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't go on talking to them. I mean, they, I just like that basically broke down. And and uh, there was one guy in particular who who I still talk to uh, because we came, we become friends, and and I've never met him face to face, but I hope to someday. But the first time I talked to him, uh, he said. I really, really want to thank you for listening to me. He said, nobody's ever listened to me. And and that just stuck with me. Uh, and it sticks with me to this day. And, and he still does it. Anybody that talks to him, I, a woman from NBC wrote me two days ago. She's going to go down and interview him for for a show they're doing this summer. And, and he thanked her in the same way. And she wrote to me. And said how she had just been stunned that nobody nobody had ever thanked her for listening uh, to them like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it had the same effect on her. So yeah, I became I'm not sure I became an advocate. It didn't it didn't change anything that I wrote in the book. Uh, it didn't flavor it in any way. I didn't pick uh, I didn't pick up anything yeah. uh, of that sort. And I think that you were very careful to identify yourself. Uh, whenever you were uh, a part of the story. And uh, I think you also uh, disclaimed, uh, for example, I I appreciate that you volunteer in the book that uh, you've never been a CIA agent uh, or involved with the agency in any way. Yeah, Uh, so many people asked me that when when I was working on the book that I I felt it important to put that out there. uh Uh-huh. Well, and, and uh, you know, I've only dabbled a little bit in radio interviews that never went into great depth, Hank, mm-hmm. on, on issues from the uh, covert actions of the, the CIA or other mm-hmm. arms of our, our national security apparatus. Mm-hmm. And I've always done so with, uh, with a certain uh, concern, uh, number one, uh, for long-term, my own safety, and number two, uh, one never knows when one is being played. When you get into these uh, layers of lies and deception and, uh, you know, these uh, compartmentalized uh, uh, security uh, structures, it, it's very hard to know who's telling the truth and what the facts really are. Mm-hmm. You're, well, you're absolutely right. It, it really is a wilderness of mirrors, as, as has been said many times, or just a labyrinth of, of deception. You, you never know who you're talking to. Occasionally, even when I thought I knew who I was talking to, I wasn't. I wasn't always sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and repeatedly, when I did talk to people that I knew were CIA and and weren't trying to conceal it, I was reminded repeatedly to be to be a good American in terms of writing the book. And my reply was always, "Well, I, I think I'm being a good good American just by recounting this this history." Mm-hmm. And I said, "I'm not twisting it in any way for you or or for anyone else, myself included." And I'd get a funny look once in a while uh, because that's certainly not what they meant. But yeah, but uh, 
I don't know. It's a it's a it's a difficult world and country today. You never you never quite know who you're dealing with, and that carries right through to the media. Uh, I, <laughs> so many people are upset with the the mainstream media today, and and I've seen so many things of late that 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 seem to point to the fact that the media is being very much manipulated, if not controlled, uh, by the intelligence community in a lot of ways, and. And that's pretty upsetting. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to acknowledge that in our first interview, I had not completed your book. And so I was on uh, a little shaky ground in terms of the, uh, the outcome of your investigation into the death of Frank Olson in November of 1953. And Frank Olson was a scientist uh, it, it remains a little fuzzy to me about whether he actually worked for the CIA. You have conflicting information in the book that you present about that. Do you conclude that uh, he not only worked at Fort Detrick on assignment to the Army, but he also was a, uh, a member of the Central Intelligence Agency? Right. I, I didn't conclude anything in the book, uh, mainly because I wanted to leave it up to readers to, to conclude themselves. And I, I want to conclude themselves because I wasn't sure where to come down on the issue yeah. uh, when I had finished the book. I now I can say now, though, I, I did conclude that Olson, most likely in the last six to eight months of his life, uh, probably was in the process of transferring over. Uh, to the CIA, and that some formal things had actually happened to to uh, affect his his employment status with the agency. And I base that primarily on uh, William Colby's book, uh, and where where in that book Colby, who a former DCI during the 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 exposures of the middle 1970s, in Colby's book he actually refers to. Uh, Olson as a, as a CIA employee. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, having read Colby's book a couple times, I don't think that was a, I don't think that was a mistake on Colby's part. Mm -hmm. I, I honestly think that maybe Colby was trying to tell us something mm -hmm. that he, he knew we didn't know. And I think Colby was intelligent enough and crafty enough to, to do that. And the fact that he did it twice within, I think, two and a half pages uh, really cemented that. Mm -hmm. But that said, I'm not, I'm not sure how it changes the story at all. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that, that Olson was or wasn't a CIA employee, either way, he was, he was spending most of his time working for the agency mm -hmm. regardless. Yeah. Uh, so so what, what you describe is um, the events uh, that became known later. Uh, related to Project Artichoke, which was intended to come up with a, a truth drug that could be administered to get uh, foreign agents or other people to talk, and uh, uh, MK Ultra, which had many uh, sub-projects, but uh, in, in general terms was experimenting with LSD, uh, mescaline, and uh, the active ingredient in marijuana, THC, uh, trying to see how people would react to it. Uh, the rationale was that uh, the U.S. was studying these uh, for both uh, uh, aggressive and defensive uh, potential use. And uh, at a, uh, a lodge in Maryland uh, in November of uh, 1953, uh, Frank Olson was given a dose of LSD in an after-dinner drink, uh, a Cointreau, 
um, and uh, the uh, story that originally surfaced was uh, that he had a bad trip and uh, it really flipped him out. He then uh, was uh, given psychiatric care or at least uh, some sort of medical care. It turns out Dr. Abramson in New York was not a, uh, a psychiatrist, but was some sort of an allergist. Um, and then uh, the story, the cover story was that, uh, and of course the drug use, uh, the administering of the LSD was not revealed for many years. So the initial story was simply that he had been depressed. He went to New York to get some help and uh, staying at the Statler Hotel, uh, he uh, hurled himself out of a window, I believe on the 10th story, and uh, fell to his death on the sidewalk. And and that was the the story uh, that was told to the family, and uh, they had no new information. What for twenty three years after until, his death? Right until nineteen seventy five, correct? Uh huh. And um, what else would you like to add, just to the the original story um, about his death, and then we'll talk about how different disclosures, uh, uh, you know, disc- opened up uh, other things that uh, you know you finally conclude in the book that uh, he was killed, sure. that he did not uh, take his own life. Right. He was definitely murdered. The only, the only thing I would emphasize uh, in terms of his death in, in 1953, maybe a couple of things. Uh, in 53, his family was told that, that he was depressed uh, in a very undefinable sort of way, and, and his wife was really shaken just by that news and the news that he was going to be taken to New York to see a psychiatrist. Uh, she had, And she consistently said until the day she died in the 1980s that he had never been depressed at all and had never uh, wanted to seek uh, psychiatric or assistance in any way. But when Olson died uh, in, on November 28, 1953, what was left out of the story from 1953 until 1975 was that he didn't just jump out of a window. He, he actually got up at 2.30 in the morning, dressed in his underwear in a dark room where allegedly another man was sleeping, a CIA handler who was with him, and ran across the room in the dark. Uh, and it was a room that was intersected by two beds, two twin beds, and dove over a radiator through a closed window that had a canvas shade drawn and cloth curtains in front of the canvas shade. Yet he was able to center himself exactly on the glass in the lower pane and go through <laughs> the curtains, the shade, and the window mm-hmm. without causing any, any cuts whatsoever to his body, and he, and he fell to the street below. Uh, and what was reported in '53 was simply he was depressed and jumped out a window to his death. Nobody, nobody reported any of that other information. That came out in 1975. But, and that's pretty remarkable that that was held so tightly for all those years. But what's even more remarkable is when that came out in '75 that no news people, no reporters looked at that and said. This is really, you know, this is really pretty suspicious. How how could a man even accomplish that in the middle of the night in the dark? Mm-hmm. Uh, they simply reported it as as having been so. 
Well, and uh, I would just like to add, I have not visited the uh, specific room that uh, he stayed in that night, uh, but uh, I have stayed at that hotel. It's now called the Pennsylvania, right? and it's a real dump. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> I, I, I was uh, trapped in New York without a reservation, and uh, it was the only place that had a room available. And yeah. this, this was 10 years ago, and what a wreck yeah. it was. <laughs> yeah, it's really in disrepair. Uh, amazingly, in 1953, it was considered a pretty Tony hotel. They, they had a, jazz, a couple jazz lounges in uh-huh. the, uh, on the first floor, and, and a lot of tourists stayed there uh, and thought it was, you know, the place to stay. But problem is uh, it had nothing to do with Olson since about 1953 on. Nobody put any money into mm-hmm. the hotel. Yeah. And it's a huge hotel. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I'm not sure. But but the rooms are very small, and uh, small. you know yeah. that that's common even in modern New York hotels. Uh, the square footage is very valuable, and so you end up in in tiny spaces. But right. as as you described uh, the room, uh, I could certainly visualize it. And to get first of all to to have the uh, presence of mind at, at a time when you want to kill yourself uh, to get a running start in a tiny room and be able to hurl yourself through, as you said, the curtains, the window shade, and the window. And then in the autopsy that was finally conducted uh, years later, it showed that there were no uh, lacerations or wounds that uh, would have been consistent with uh, going through that window uh, in, the, in the manner that the, the official story described. That's exactly right. And, and on top of that, his family was taught when his body... In, de- in December of 53, was returned to, uh, to Frederick, Maryland, to the family. Uh, the family was told they couldn't view the body uh, because he was so, so cut up and, and uh, disfigured uh, from, his, from the fall, not, not so much from the glass. I don't think they mentioned glass at all. And the family made no attempt to try to view the body. The thing that I've found out subsequently, and this is even subsequent to publishing the book, is that uh, somebody confidentially sent me a document about a month ago uh, that Olson had signed prior to his death, years, uh, four or five years prior to his death, stating that uh, he and I guess everyone else that worked in his division agreed never to have an open casket funeral or an autopsy because of the nature of their work. Hmm. at Camp Dietrich, and, mm-hmm. and I found that pretty stunning and, and interesting, uh, that everyone that worked for that division had to agree to that. So even if, he, even if the family had wanted to view him, they wouldn't have been able to because of, because of that, that agreement. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, the title of your book, uh, A Terrible Mistake, is a quote from Frank Olson to his wife, and of course he was bound by all these uh, secrecy agreements, and uh, she honored them. And you know, I I can't imagine what it would be like to live in a relationship like that, really, where you 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 know that there are things your partner knows that you simply cannot ever discuss. But um, Alice Olson, uh, after he returned from uh, Deep Creek uh, Lodge and this incident where he was fed LSD apparently without his knowledge. Um, all he told her was, I've made a terrible mistake. And he was acting very erratically. Uh, he thought his food was being poisoned. She rode with him. 
from this, uh, this, what, about 50 miles from downtown mm-hmm. Washington yep. uh, uh, to D.C., uh, and uh, they stopped at a, a diner, and uh, he was very agitated and uh, paranoid. And so these were the limited bits of information uh, that she had uh, prior to his death. Uh, there was a phone call uh, uh, shortly before he allegedly committed suicide where he sounded upbeat and was coming home for Thanksgiving. Uh, so she must have lived with uh, these these uh, contradictions and knowing that uh, she didn't know the truth and could not find it. And you report that uh, she descended into alcoholism for many years after her husband's death. Yes, she did. She she became a, a pretty severe alcoholic, and it, it had a big impact on, on her family, on her three children. And, and, of course, the children were very curious to know. They were all very young when Frank died and very curious to know what had happened to their father. Eric probably knew the most uh, because he he had an inquiring mind at the time he was nine years old, and he understood that his father had committed suicide, but the, his sister and his brother, Nils and Lisa, didn't. And Alice Alice was always reluctant, always refusing to, to give them any information to the point where occasionally she'd just break down and scream at the children that, that they, uh, they were destined to never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, why their father had killed himself. So she was, in in the 70s when everything came out, she was actually in a, in a lot of ways vindicated because uh, she grasped onto the incident uh, of the use of the LSD and, and thought that explained everything. Unfortunately, uh, her lawyers didn't feel that way. Her lawyers, uh, who who were going to sue this, the CIA and the government, or Olson's wrong, wrongful death, realized at that point in time that really there were too many things about the story that didn't make sense, including mm-hmm. the, the LSD at Deep Creek Lake. But Alice was satisfied. She was content that she had enough of the story and enough of an explanation to, to die and, and feel comfortable. She, the week she found out in 1975 about what had happened to Olson uh, vis-a-vis the uh, this LSD, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Yeah. So, so it was a it was a tough week for her. But, but her her lawyers and and some of some of her children pleaded with her to to go forward with the case against against the CIA. Uh, and unfortunately, they didn't. Had they gone forward, God only knows what would have happened. It it really would have opened up. Uh, a can of worms in 1975. I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how the government would have would have been able to put the lid on it, uh, short of maybe assassinating the lawyers. I yeah. just uh, the lawyers were really onto something, but she wouldn't allow them to go forward. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, in the book, and uh, again, you have painstaking documentation of the many layers uh, of the story as it was revealed. Um, But the final chapters uh, tell us that uh, the night that he died, it appeared that they were trying to uh, transport him back to uh, the D.C. area, and instead of uh, going by airplane, they were going to take him in a car because they felt he was unstable, and uh, they were concerned, I guess, about traveling in public. 
Right. And so you uh, describe the scene, and, and let me ask you, uh, rather than me summarizing mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. to take our listeners through uh, what you conclude is the, the, uh, the final minutes of Frank Olson's life. Sure. Well, he, he was murdered, and I, I can uh, recount the details, but uh, two days prior to the day he was murdered, he had actually attempted to escape uh, from the hotel. He realized, because he had divulged uh, confidential classified information prior to that, that his, to put it bluntly, his number was really up. He was going to be sent to, to an institution in Maryland where... Uh, supposedly further assessment was going to be done on him. I'm convinced he would have been murdered in, in that institution, Chestnut Lodge in Rockville, murder in Rockville, Maryland. But so Olson again tried to escape the night of his death, uh, wanted to leave the hotel uh, as he had two nights prior. Uh, and there were two, there were two people in the adjoining room. Uh, I think it was 10, 20B or whatever it's in the book, but mm-hmm. and and a struggle ensued, and at that point in time, it was basically a fight for his death, and he was thrown through the window, and the two people that threw him through the window, interestingly enough, were were both foreign nationals, uh, both men from France, uh, both men were very notorious even in those days, uh, drug traffickers, uh, drugs drugs being heroin and sometimes morphine. Both men were wanted in France uh, for collaboration with the Nazis. Already been sentenced to death uh, in their absence in France. But nonetheless, both were recruited by the CIA uh, prior to Olson's death, and not immediately prior to Olson's death. One of them maybe a month before, but the other years before, and and had actually been sent to... Washington to be trained by the CIA uh, because he was a, a master extortionist and, and criminal. And, and that's they, Jean-Pierre Lafitte. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And, and they wanted they wanted him on the payroll because he was very useful to the agency. And it's no different from today. I mean, it's been an issue for the last 15 years, uh, the CIA's employment of what, what are commonly termed unsavory characters, uh, a term they like to use rather than just thugs or, or outright criminals. Uh, and and they say that rather than saying they, they won't do that any longer, they say, well, we have to do this. Uh, it's necessary in, in, in order to infiltrate certain, certain situations, certain parties, certain countries, what have you. But mm-hmm. unfortunately... Uh, the, the criminals and, and drug dealers have, have seemed to be a common denominator with the agency for the last 50 or 60 years, actually since its founding. Mm-hmm. Uh, the agency is cozied up to criminals and thugs, and, and not just in the area of, of, of drugs, but also in the area of assassination. And, and I cover that a little bit in the book in terms of Johnny Roselli's involvement uh, with the agency and Santo Traficanti, and, mm-hmm. and all these people are prominent mafia figures that the agency went out of its way to recruit, that reached out for specifically, and and uh, and asked for help with uh, certain assassinations. The, the highest profile assassination being uh, Castro's mm-hmm. attempted assassination, numerous times of Castro, they all failed, but 
but other individuals too. Yeah, uh, well, probably and, more than we know about. And, and Hank, you uh, list in the book uh, too numerous to you know recount here in a in a radio interview, mm-hmm. um, but countless events of unexplained deaths or deaths that were attributed to suicide that are at least questionable, if not, um, you know, highly suspicious. And the pattern of people who uh, become a liability uh, to the CIA uh, is, uh, you know, that that somehow they die. And uh, some of these may have been uh, direct assassinations where they were taken out by people like uh, Pierre Lafitte. Um, and others, uh, you know, we, we can't explain, but as you did in the Olson case, when uh, you really get at the information, you get at some of the principles, um, even if they're like Lashbrook and, and Gottlieb, uh, the, these two, Lashbrook was the guy who was in the room with Olson uh, the night that uh, he, he was pitched out the window, uh, and Gottlieb was really the godfather of the uh, the CIA's uh, uh, LSD experimentation programs, and uh, you know you were able to get some of their comments on the record. They they didn't really disclose that much, but when you take the morsels that you get here and there, uh, what appear to be thousands of documents that you collected as they were declassified and as you pursued Freedom of Information Act requests, uh, you were able to piece together the elements of this story. And if we took every unexplained death of someone who either worked for the CIA or was somehow uh, engaged with them in a, in a project or a mission, um, we, we might see uh, a more clear pattern emerge. Well, I think you're exactly right. It, it, there were an unusual number, a trail of bodies uh, in the Olson case. And, and even, uh, even while I was writing the book, uh, people were were turning up dead. Uh, when I first had contact with the uh, New York District Attorney's Office, it was a couple weeks before they wrote a letter, a formal formal letter to William Colby, asking to to come down to his Eastern Shore home and to interview him about the uh, about the Olson case. Colby was still alive at that point in time. And the day they mailed the letter, Colby disappeared. <laughs> it was—I mean—it was on CBS News that that uh, he'd he'd gone out canoeing one night and and it turned up missing, was missing for a week, and then finally discovered dead. And that was that was quite odd and quite scary. And then, oh, months later, I think maybe the following year, I had had a conversation with Eric where I suggested that um, maybe we interview David Bellin, who had been the executive director of the Rockefeller Commission, Mm -hmm. uh, which had turned up all the uh, findings about Olson in 1975. And Eric said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. So I called, I remember it was a, a Thursday afternoon, I called Bellin's office in, I think it was Iowa, uh, and spoke to his secretary, and she told me he had gone to the gone gone to, gone to a hospital. I'm not sure. I can't remember which hospital now for for a routine checkup, and he'd be back the following Monday. Uh, 
and that I could call them and see if an interview could be arranged. And I thanked her and hung up, and three or four days later, I picked up the newspaper and discovered that he had slipped uh, while in a hotel uh, at the hospital uh, where he'd gone for a checkup and somehow struck his head and went into a coma and died two two days later. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> I didn't know what to think about that. I, Eric, we we were trying to call each other for about five minutes uh, uh, to talk about that. It was just so so stunning and frightening. Uh, but and and then there were lots of other things like that. It was I I guess you know the agency would call it coincidental. I I certainly didn't call them for comment because mm-hmm. I knew what they'd say. And and Hank, anyway, let me but, let me digress into the sure. recent past here because uh, most of our listeners uh, really only know about Fort Detrick as the site where uh, it is believed now in the FBI's conclusion of the investigation over the anthrax mailings of uh, the fall of 2001, that the uh, specific strain of anthrax could only have come uh, from either Fort Detrick or a laboratory in Iowa. And uh, the FBI has concluded that Dr. Bruce Ivins was the only person uh, involved in the uh, mailing of that anthrax to uh, media outlets and Democratic senators. And Tom Daschle uh, tells the story that he was resisting um, uh, some draconian elements that Republicans wanted in the Patriot Act uh, at the time that the anthrax mailings occurred. Um, do you believe that, A, Dr. Ivins committed suicide, and B, that the FBI's fingering of him uh, after his death um, is uh, is credible? Well, to the first question, do I believe Ivan's committed suicide? Based on the evidence I've seen, absolutely not. I, it, it seems to be manufactured evidence, and and the the few particles that seem to make some sense, uh, if, if you look into it just in a minor sort of way, you can tell they've been invented. Uh, they're trying to besmirch uh, Ivan's reputation. People, people that know him, dispute almost everything the FBI has said. But no, I think it's Frank Olson all over again. And I think, in terms of Dash, not only Dashel, but I think Pat Leahy also got anthrax. That's and true. Leahy, Leahy is certainly. I grew up in the state of Vermont. I know Pat, and he's certainly no friend of the CIA. And I know they've had it in in for him for a while when when he supposedly released some top-secret information. So he was, if anybody was a target for anthrax, it would have been Leahy and Daschle. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I don't think it was Ivan's at all. Uh, and if people remember, people have short memories when it comes to this stuff. At one point in time, it was James Hatfield. And, and the FBI was so comfortable with Hatfield as a as a suspect that they leaked the information to the New York Times, and the New York Times crucified the guy yeah. on the on the editorial and op-ed pages uh, over and over again for several months until it was found out. Whoops, we made a mistake, and I think they gave Mr. Hatfield a few million dollars and told him to go away, and I guess he did that happily, but. No, it wasn't Ivan's. I don't think it was Ivan's at all. I I, ha, I have an opinion as to what I think has happened. I'd rather not voice it on the air because mm-hmm. I could end up in, in a lawsuit. But I, I think people could easily just go to the go to the internet and Google the case, and and that opinion is all over. Uh, mm-hmm. Not on my behalf, but on others. 
that opinion's all over the internet, and and it seems to make a world of sense. Uh, any any reasonable object, uh, objective person, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was a put up, uh, you know, and and it fit in very nicely with everything that happened uh, around the ninety nine eleven event. Mm-hmm. Country basically went into a state of hysteria uh, for more than a year. Uh, God only, I mean, George Bush could have had anything he wanted uh, during that period of time. I'm, I'm kind of surprised in retrospect they didn't even ask for more, but God knows they got a lot. Well, they, they didn't ask for a lot, they just took it. Uh, uh, well, that's, that's true, too. <laughs> and then eight years later, they backed the trucks up and took all the money, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and the the other piece of it is that Congress was sufficiently intimidated Absolutely. that uh, it it didn't exercise even the minimal oversight of uh, the uh, executive branch as it was grabbing power and uh, just asserting that it had the right yep. to do so. You're absolutely right, and even Dashiell and Leahy went along with it. I think the only the only guy that voted against it might have been Bernie Sanders. But I think but, Fein, uh, I think Feingold did in the Senate. But, right, you're right. And you're right. Uh, Barbara Lee uh, was the uh, there were others who voted against the Patriot Act in right. the House, but she was the most consistent in voting against uh, the granting of the sweeping powers uh, to right. respond to the 9/11 attacks. Well, Hank, one of the things that uh, I wrestle with here, and uh, I I refer people as well to our earlier interview, because there we talked about uh, the uh, history of torture and uh, the Scott Horton revelations about the three Guantanamo detainees who were taken to a, a separate site from Camp Delta on a given evening in 2006 and uh, returned dead. And um, the thing that I wrestle with is, you know, we, we were in the dark during the Cold War. We really had no idea uh, what the spooks were doing. And then we had our own little glasnost, uh, an era of apparent openness, where the Church Commission, the Rockefeller Commission, uh, both uh, Presidents Ford and President Carter um, uh, tried to... Uh, move us uh, forward and away from uh, uh, what what you and I would clearly consider unconstitutional, illegal, immoral, and uh, acts that uh, violated our treaty obligations. Um, and when I look at this, and in the appendix of your book, uh, you have an excerpt from the CIA's assassination manual. Well, we know that variations of, of that document were used at the School of the Americas to train people at Fort Benning, Georgia, who mostly worked for South American and Central American dictators, and uh, that uh, those methods were widely used uh, after people were trained uh, at U.S. taxpayer expense. And uh, so uh, my my question, after that lengthy (laughs) opening, Mm -hmm. is uh, did we ever actually live within the law has our intelligence community ever um, uh, uh, accepted the executive authority when, uh, for example, they were told that assassinations were no longer uh, legal or appropriate uh, and, and that uh, you know they could not be conducted? Mm-hmm. Um, my view is that there have been various PR offenses where it has been made to appear 
that we moved into uh, compliance with the, the standards that I referenced. But, uh, you know, my, my deep suspicion is that we have always engaged in, in a dual track and that uh, we have given license to kill, license to feed uh, drugs to unsuspecting individuals, um, license to uh, uh, destabilize foreign governments and kill their leaders, and that we've never actually been any different than uh, the Cold War uh, sensibilities that you detail in your book. Well, short answer is uh, you're absolutely right. You're not wrong about any of that. Uh, if the other thing that I have in the appendix of the book, and I have to give credit to my editor for including it, is the Nuremberg Nuremberg Codes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most people hopefully know that you know those those were written after our, we and, and a number of our allies in the Second World War put uh, a number of Nazis on trial for, for doing horrendous things, and, and we hung them. And then we adopted uh, in the international treaty the Nuremberg Codes that all the allies agreed to, and, and in hopes that, uh, or expectations that nothing like that would ever happen again. But the, the, the truth is, is that within within a year or two after we agreed to that, we started violating that code left and right, and and doing some of the very same things we had hung, or we had hung Nazi scientists for, mm-hmm. uh, and we continued to do those things through the fifties, through the sixties, through the seventies, and we continue to do them today. It's it's as if the Nuremberg codes don't even exist. Nobody even pays attention to them. It's it's a mockery. It's a joke that 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 they that they even stand today. Uh, I, I haven't heard anybody even refer to them in I don't know years. But but uh, it's all you know. It's lip service. Do do we still assassinate people? Absolutely. But now we've become very very crafty at it. We do it with with unmanned drones or predators. Uh, well, and, and, and Cy, Cy Hirsch uh, has told us that Dick Cheney had an assassination squad that reported directly to him. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were permitted, uh, allegedly, to commit domestic assassinations. Uh, at, at least that's what I've heard, that, that that wasn't considered, you know, out of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, did they commit any? Who knows? I wouldn't be surprised. Uh but but to me it's just stunning that that you know assassination teams uh, Blackwater has become uh, whatever their name is now uh, has become experts in assassination they've sort of evolved into these roving hit teams all over the United all over the country all over the na- the world including this nation uh, but they're very skilled hit teams and and Prince was Eric Prince that runs them. Uh, did an article recently at Vanity Fair, I think, where where he prided, uh, he was very proud to boast that, mm-hmm. that they had become experts uh, in assassination, and he even made reference, without giving a lot of detail, to uh, the old OSS assassination proposal that had come uh, under Wild Bill Donovan when, uh, and and that's basically the program the CIA adopted, uh, but. To form elite teams of assassins so as to rule the world. It was mm-hmm. as simple as that. And we're still doing it. Uh, and 
I don't, you know, what's going to stop it? Who, a lot of people seem very content with it. It doesn't seem to bother them uh, a bit. Uh, sure. I mean, uh, the, the assassination of a Hamas leader in a hotel room in um, uh, Dubai or the Emirates exactly. uh, a couple of months back uh, is widely attributed to Israel. And uh, yet many people rationalize and say, well, he was a bad dude. He, mm-hmm. you know, he was the uh, defense minister for a terrorist group. And uh, those, of course, are very loaded terms, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, whose perspective is used. But we also see that through the popularization of uh, anything goes approaches, and I'm referring to the show 24, which has mm-hmm. just been... Uh, uh, slated for uh, 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 its final episodes in the next couple of months, um, that that show basically has marketed um, uh, covert action, including assassination, um, as a reasonable response. Absolutely. It's made made people numb to it, and and at the same time they enjoy it. And I hate to... I don't want to mention this book, but I think I have to. There, there is a book. I'm not going to mention the author, but there is a book out that that I think was on the the broad New York Times bestseller list called Ghost, which is by uh, a man, former Montgomery uh, County policeman, Montgomery, Maryland, uh, who worked for the State Department very closely with the CIA, and he was he was a, a living, breathing Jack Bauer. And if you read the introduction to the book, you'll be shocked mm-hmm. at how he how he writes that he loved killing people, uh, whether they were guilty or not. If they were on the list, he got them. Uh, and this was put out by a very reputable publisher, and and it just page after page in this book is just stunning material. And this it's not fiction; it's true. So if people think Jack Bauer isn't real, they, they need to guess again. There's a lot of Jack Bowers out there, uh, and they're killing a lot of people that we don't know anything about. And a lot of people would probably applaud at that, that statement. But uh, it's just like Guantanamo. A lot of these people getting killed are totally innocent. Uh, and they've only been turned in uh, so somebody could pocket five or $10,000. Yeah. And uh, it would, it's, it's even more horrible when you think somebody is murdered because somebody wants five or $10,000 and, and turns somebody in on that basis. Yeah. But the guy killed in Dubois, Hamas, at one time we recognized Hamas as a, as a genuine organization. Well, uh, I'm not quite sure when that changed. But Well, in, in 2006, we uh, embraced them as a uh, democratic participant mm-hmm. in the elections in uh, the Palestinian territories. Right. And then when they won, uh, we backed <laughs> Israel's efforts to right. uh, starve them and, and cage them and uh, demonize them. Right. Hank, w- one of the most stunning revelations in your book, is about the events in a little French town called Pont Saint Esprit. Pont Saint stands for bridge, and Saint Spirito. Uh, I'm not sure exactly uh, who that refers bridge to. Bridge of the spirits, I yeah. think. Uh, yeah. So, uh, take a minute or two to tell our listeners about that. Yeah, that's kind of exploded in in France and Europe. Uh, it goes to the heart of the motive as to why Frank Olson was killed uh, in his final months. Uh, Olson really became very indiscreet. He wanted to leave his employment with with both the Army and the CIA. He was tired of what he was doing. I'm not sure he was having pangs of conscience, but but 
he was clearly tired of the work, and believe it or not, he wanted to reschool himself as a dentist. But uh, he was a fairly arrogant, outspoken guy. He hated, uh, in a lot of ways, authority. He did not like uh, military discipline. Uh, and thinking he was on his way out, he spoke about a number of uh, experiments that he had participated in, including this experiment in Pont Saint-Esprit, whereby uh, the Special Operations Division of the Army selected this small little town in southern France for for an experiment with, with LSD that had actually been signed off on in 1949 uh, by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, and various higher-ups at Edgewood Arsenal uh, when they thought LSD could be used uh, largely uh, for uh, defensive and offensive uh, purposes in in replace conventional uh, war with guns and bombs, but the only way to prove that was to actually have field experiments. And unfortunately, this town in France was selected, uh, and an experiment was conducted there. And about 600 people went crazy, and five, 50, 60 people were carted off to the asylum, and and four people committed suicide. The the remarkable one of the remarkable dimensions to that experiment is that. It was initially planned for New York City, and and the FBI got wind of it, uh, and and asked that it be canceled or postponed. And the Army agreed to postpone it uh, for a couple years, which was very fortunate for New York City because things didn't go well uh, in the Army's perspective in Pont Saint Esprit. So the but they did go ahead with with smaller experiments in New York City on the subway system. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have any of the documents concerning that because they were all destroyed in 73, but that's why Olson, that's basically why Olson was killed, because he spoke out about that experiment. And of course, if that had become public knowledge or, or the press had become aware of that in, 19, in 1953, God only knows what would have happened. Uh, at the very least, the Russians would have had a field day with it. Uh, but that, you know, Olson basically wrote his death sentence when, when he talked about that experiment. Yeah. Hank, um, in popular American culture, the two people most identified as advocates of the uh, recreational or even therapeutic use of LSD were Ken Kesey, who led the Merry Pranksters, and Timothy Leary, the professor from MIT. But as you detail in the book at, at great length, uh, that title really belongs to Sidney Gottlieb. Yeah, I, I think it does. It, I was pretty surprised. I, I, I had the opportunity to interview Gottlieb a few times before his death, and, and actually he died, of, he died of old age, got pneumonia, and passed away, unfortunately, before I could get more from him. But, yes, I interviewed him several times, and, and he admitted to me that he, he had taken LSD long before Tim Leary or Ken Kesey even knew the drug existed, uh, 40 times. Mm -hmm. I believe took it 40 times, and, and stated quite emphatically to me that he enjoyed it. And he felt that he benefited tremendously from the drug. Otherwise, he would have never taken it so many times. And 
And uh, I don't, his, his explanation as to his experience with the drug and what he got out of it is, is much more eloquently stated in the book in his own words. But I was surprised to hear that. Uh, I think there was a, a dimension to Gottlieb that, that felt that LSD perhaps could have been put to better uses uh, than, than war, wartime or Cold War uses. But Gottlieb at the same time was very much a patriot, uh, and did everything that he was asked to do without questions. He was extremely loyal, and he was proud of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he had some regrets before he died, but uh, he attempted to make amends in, in several ways, and I think he died comfortable with himself. But if anybody deserves uh, the reputation that, in terms of LSD that Leary and Keezy have, I think it should go to... to this is Gottlieb, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It is amazing because, as you described, there are many cases where it appears that he was not uh, conducting tests. He simply had access to this and seemed to enjoy or be amused mm-hmm. by uh, dosing people. And, and the most often used term in the book, both in government documents and in your description, is the word unwitting. Right. And you use it to describe people who received uh, these drugs without knowing it. And as I mentioned in our previous conversation, uh, in my youth, I experimented on a recreational basis with things I was told uh, were LSD, window pane, and mm. uh, things uh, uh, that carried those names. Um, but in every case, I knew it. And right. so when these uh, unusual uh, mental and physical symptoms, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, developed. Uh, I wasn't shocked or afraid. Uh, certainly some of it uh, kind of hit my own boundaries, but um, I cannot imagine what it would be like to experience acid uh, without knowing it. I can't. I can't either. I mean, the people normally, people knowingly taking it are ready to embrace its effects, good or bad, and, and they've been forewarned, and, yeah. and they know what's coming in terms of just simple hallucinations or, or you know, horribly frightening hallucinations. But, but, but there, you're, you always can maintain a balance, and you know what's real and unreal, and you can enjoy those hallucinations. But for somebody in the situation where they're just one moment uh, acting normal in, in what they consider the real world, and then, and then they're experiencing something like that without knowing why, it's uh, it's got to be tantamount to going to hell yeah. uh, and not knowing it, mm-hmm. uh, unless it's extremely pleasurable. And I can't imagine it being pleasurable if you're not expecting it. And I'm going to put uh, you on the spot here. Uh, sure. Can you just summon even a ballpark estimate of the number of unwitting uh, subjects who received CIA uh, CIA uh, delivered LSD? Uh, under MK Ultra and the other activities that spawned from it, not all of which were probably part of the intended program. Sure. Well, in terms of civilians alone, uh, it would be somewhere over 10,000. And and in terms of servicemen, we have a, a more uh, uh, concrete figure. It's about almost 7,000. Uh, now, a lot of people that were responsible for the Army experiments would argue with me but and say that people knew what they were getting, but I've interviewed enough of those people. Uh, 
to know they had no idea whatsoever what they were getting, mm-hmm. uh, and that in numerous cases they were lied to. So, talking maybe roughly twenty thousand people, uh, and uh, with with a lot of damage done to to a good percentage of that number. Yeah, and I could be I could be wrong. That could be a very very low estimate. Well, Hank, uh, thank you for this second conversation, and I, I heartily recommend this book. Uh, if, if there are people who have any interest in the history of uh, the CIA's involvement in these issues and the way that it, they operated coming out of World War II, heading into the Cold War, and how much of that legacy continues today, uh, A Terrible Mistake is a must-read, and I, I really thank you, Hank, for what had to be, what, 10 years of work yeah. on your part? It was a little over 10 years, right? Yeah. Wow. Well, I thank you for having me. I, I really enjoy talking to you. I really, really do, and, and I deeply appreciate it. H.P. Alberelli Jr. And, uh, again, your website, uh, you've got a couple of them, right? There's one for the book? Yeah, there's one for the book. It's uh, a terrible mistake dot com, and then my personal website is is just alborelli dot net. Very good. Uh, yeah. Hank, we'll talk again, and thanks Thank you again very for much. your work. You I bet. really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. I welcome your comments, Peter, at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you. Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then